Welcome. Welcome back. Jokerman on the premium. Yes. What's up? What's up? That's a new way that we're going to start doing the premium episode intro. We're just going to say. Yeah, hope, hope you guys like that. You like that? Instead of the harmonica, we're just going to go. What's up? Because you're, you're one of it's we're among friends. You know, if you're like paying $5 a week for two bonus episodes, um, like a, like a real joker man or woman, then you get to have that, that more informal friendly greeting as if you are friends with us in real life. Just that's how podcasts work. You become friends by listening and paying money. But if you don't pay that money, you don't get to say that you are friends with us. You don't, you don't, you don't get to have that imagination, uh, you don't get to imagine it. So thank you all for being our friends. Our real friends in real life who we care about. It's true. Uh, do you want to talk about that um, awful thing from today? Which, oh, the, the, that article? That's the one, yeah. Really bad. Really, really, one of the worst things I've ever read uh, regarding so regarding Bob. Like, this is one of the most embarrassing things. The thing I would have to say to this guy, this British uh, journalist, apparently that's what he would be. Sicko, sicko. It's like you didn't have to do this. Like, it's like somebody voluntarily putting themselves in the position of Bob Dylan. You know, like reaming that reporter and don't look back. But Bob Dylan isn't there. He's not even trying to talk to you. And this guy just decided to put himself in that position. It's masochistic. It's, it's really frankly pretty kinky in a way that I think is a little over the top. And, um, I, I, it's just a little too much for me. It's not something kids should see. It's not something families should watch. Really just uh, grotesque. Uh, for those of you who, who aren't completely clued in, this is, uh, this is Bob Dylan Doesn't Like You. This is the actual title of the article by Dorian Linsky. Uh, listener Justin sent it to us on Patreon. Thank you, Justin, for sending us such uh, awful uh, and uh, really just kind of upsetting material. Uh, we love to see it. Um, Dorian, uh, obviously a sicko London-based journalist who looks like an egg uh, He's bald, print. which is, yes. you know, not a bad thing to be, but when you are bad, it is fair game. You can he call He looks out. like Humpty Dumpty. Yeah. Sure. Um, and yeah, he basically just spends, I don't know, 1500 words, something like that, just mewling and whining about Bob being- About the times that Bob was rude in the past. Yeah. And he he's also complaining, He he uh, he's complaining about- Bob's set at uh, Hyde Park in 2019, a set that's actually, I think, well kind of established as one of his like greatest late late era um, uh, performances. There's a video that we've posted, I think, online before of him doing "When I Paint My Masterpiece" at Hyde Park in 20 in 2019. It's just fantastic. And what could he possibly um, have to say about this that was negative? Uh, I saw him headline Hyde Park in 2019, which one Dylan veteran assured me was an unusually convivial affair because the great man was seen to smile occasionally and didn't turn his back on the audience. 
Joan Baez has said that he looks on stage, quote, as though he'd rather be in a dark parlor playing chess. Perhaps in a sense he is. Dylan's fans are practiced in lowering the bar. A crowd-pleasing set of beloved hits? Grow up. A hello, goodbye, or a thanks for coming? Dream on. He is the only artist I know who routinely disfigures the melodies of his classic songs, often beyond recognition. At Hyde Park, my friend said he was hoping to hear Make You Feel My Love, and I had to inform him that Dylan had already played it. During the chorus of Like a Rolling Stone, the crowd staged a joyful mutiny by singing the standard tune, regardless of what Dylan was doing on stage. But I sensed no resentment in it. Bob Dylan didn't personally come off the stage, say, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so happy that you came. And uh, and then proceeded to suck me off till I was bone dry. Hmm. And this was really disturbing to me, extra disturbing, I should say, because everyone else in the crowd seemed to be enjoying the music that was happening. And, and um, I just couldn't get past the fact that Bob was not there with my cum all over his face. <laughs> I have to say as, as a British journalist that there's something wrong with this artist. Once again, Jokerman stands uh, firmly. Well, this member of Jokerman stands firmly against all of the just uh, absolutely psychotic and um, sociopathic and just generally, you know, evil kind of let's, of let's, let's inhabit that cursed. I, Ian, I, I want to call you out. I think you need to be held accountable because it's not it's not really the fault of the British. It's actually the, the what you're talking about and who you should aim your ire at is British journalists who are indeed and unequivocally the scum of this earth. But the fact that the crowd seemed to be really enjoying it, um, I think, tells mm. us that we need to be a little bit more judicious in the way that we apply our hatred toward the British. You can hold me accountable all you like. I still don't like them. The most embarrassing thing about that whole piece is the ending. I don't know if you read that, but... I did. Oh, oh, he goes, I mean, I don't even want to read this. It sucks so much. Um, but he probably has a posh accent. It's like, yeah, definitely. I'm trying to state what seems to be an obvious fact, which is that we will never again see a star on this scale who gives so little and is so widely admired for it. That's the line that really got me. Go on. I can't do the accent anymore. By making it abundantly clear that he doesn't need any of us. <laughs> Speak for yourself, you bitch. <laughs> not journalists, not fans, not peers. Who is his peer? <laughs> you fucking loser. Jesus Christ. He thinks of himself as one of Dylan's peers, clearly. Dylan remains unknowable and unbound in a way that I suspect some modern celebrities secretly envy. Maybe you secretly, like not so secretly envy, you mm. twat. That is a unique kind of power, albeit faintly inhuman. So happy birthday, Bob, you magnificent jerk. I'm sorry <laughs> I called you a genius back <laughs> there, but in my defense, I don't want to make you like me. You are who you are. There, there was no, there is no apparent point to this post. Like it's 2000 words. It ran on his birthday against all of the other birthday coverage. And it's just this guy just bitching, just bitching, 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 bitching. What's the most embarrassing, cringy thing I could possibly put out there? I guess it would be a thing where at the end I do like unwarranted, like personal, you know, like ribbing of Bob Dylan, like, 
a guy magnificent jerk get the fuck out of here yeah you you are not like and the worst line of course is the one that we both reacted to so strongly we will never see again a star on the scale who gives so little what has bob dylan been doing for the last six decades but putting out giving to the world like the greatest recorded musical art in history like what we consider that giving so little like what have you possibly given except this bitching little puff piece that will be forgotten tomorrow shut the fuck up get the fuck out of here dorian linsky you are on the list you are on the list if we see you it's on site Abs- this is not a joke we <laughs> <laughs> um anyway you want to get into this uh, episode <laughs> yeah i guess we have some uh i guess we have some actual uh good things to talk about here don't we uh welcome back to uh the original classics um been excited for this one this is uh the jokerman original classics select series jokerman uh, original uh, original flavor the new classic original select series yes. from from jokerman soda uh been excited for this one this is really well i mean we'll get into it but i think this is this is the first like Bob Dylan album. This is this, when Bob this really invented is, yeah. what a Bob Dylan album is. Basically. It's pretty. It's pretty wild. I mean, and it's one that famously, if you uh, listen to the podcast, I don't know. I didn't know that well. Like, I haven't spent that much time with. But it's something I've spent time with lately, and I can tell you that uh, Ian is right. And uh, another side of Bob Dylan really is kind of the first Bob Dylan album, really, in a lot of ways. It sure is. Uh, 1964 release comes out uh, August 8th, 1964. Entire record cut in one day. Went wow. into the studio on June 9th, 1964. Banged it all out. Uh, and then it hit the streets, uh, what is that, eight weeks later, basically. So this is right kind of smack dab in the middle in between the, you know, freewheeling times era of things and the free uh, bring it all back home and what we're going to get. The free will and times. Yeah. The free, well, you know, you know, free will and end times. I know what you mean. It's just yeah, funny. You to know hear. what I mean? I'm, we're among, we're among the experts here. They know what I mean. What should um, we say instead of Bobcats? Who are the Jokerman fans? Like, do we have like little monsters? Like what is our like name for, I guess Joker men, but you just. Joker. I think, I think we Joker need friends? to stay. We need to stay. We need to stay gender neutral. I think Joker folks is what it has to be, or Joker friend. Joker folks, yeah. F O L X. Right. Surely, there's another spot we could put an X in there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like that Joker folks with an X. That's not quite good enough. I think no, we could a, do a little bit better. Well, we get a Y in there. J O K Y R F O L X. Joe Cure folks. How about Joe Queer folks? Joe, perfect. Fantastic. L G L J B T Q. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Pride Month to all who celebrate. Um, another side of Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah, right there, middle of 1964. Uh, this is the artist in evolution. Uh, you know, in going into his uh, his little his little shell. Um, or uh, what are they? What what is the thing that the caterpillar goes into? The 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 and then it comes out and becomes a butterfly. Eric Carl's very hungry caterpillar. I'm just talking. I'm I'm. We can mention Eric Carl. R.I.P. King. Eric Carl, uh, one of the great. Great artist, just a great artist. 
someone who's given so little over the last. Oh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Eric Carl, the, um, the Bob Dylan of children's book uh, artwork. Really. Sure. Uh, anyways, maybe, maybe he's in competition is. with Maurice Sendak on that. Actually. I don't know. Showdown Eric Carl versus Maurice Sendak who made the better at children's book. I don't know who did rainbow fished. Maybe we need to like rainbow fish. Uh, where were we? The first track. We, Let's just jump in. The first it. track. Precisely. All I really want to do. And you can read a lot into this. Can you? For the first time, Bob Dylan is saying, this is what I, Bob Dylan, want to do to you and your body and your, and um, what I don't want to do. Correct. Yeah, this is, he is, the title of the song is All I Really Want to Do, but he's also telling you what he doesn't want to do. Noticeably, he does not say liberate or uh, free from the tyranny of capital. And that's yes. very disturbing to me. <laughs> I actually just had a an argument with um you know it's a spirited conversation I should I should say with one of my Uh-oh. roommates who is a communist and who would have booed Bob Dylan I'm almost certain of it when he went like electric a folk uh, folknik type that's right I my roommate is you know a great friend of mine wonderful guy very he's a folknik and um we were just kind of getting into it about Bob abandoning you know, the political music and, um, surely people are not still having this argument in 2021. Living proof exists at. (laughs) So you're going to, you're going to need to bleep that one in the edit. My address. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Did he, so, so in your roommate's, uh, view of things, Bob's a phony, Bob's a sellout. Is that, is that the gist of it? More or less. Boy. He's a big uh, Phil Oaks guy, big Van Ronk guy, you know. Van Ronk guy. Yeah, yeah. He's my, my roommate's a big Van Ronk guy, big uh, Phil Like, I, I picked, I've won one of the few people in the world who whose views like this. And we- This is, fanta- this is fascinating. Does he only, so does he only listen to like village folk shit from 1960 to 1963? He also listens to like a lot of like Russian and international folk music. Okay. But yeah, but he's, he's not he's not like a Van Ronk guy, and then he's also like blasting uh, No Love Deep Web or something. He actually is really into Death Grips. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a big Van Dave Van Ronk and Death Grips guy. Those are my. You uh, couldn't be more accurate. That is what Jesus his taste Christ. is like. Um, that is exactly what his taste is like. So we got into it and it was kind of fascinating. And, you know, to go back to um, what we were talking about with this tune, this is the beginning of the end for guys like that. Yeah. This is, this is when they start getting pissed. This is where you start to go, huh? I noticed you didn't say anything about um, the people, <laughs> about uh, working conditions in the mines. I'm, I'm starting to uh, tug at my collar and, um, yeah, I'm starting to make like three stooges sounds <laughs> because, uh, I'm starting to think maybe Bob is a little bit more interested in getting pussy than he is, uh, in, uh, <laughs> maybe saving the proletariat from, uh, the, the horrors of the capitalist machine. Listen, sooner or later, everyone just, you know, 
everyone gives in to the horniness that drives them. And here in 1964, Bob's a 23 year old man. What do you expect of him? Well, this is why I, I would call myself a realist. And I think that you would too. And I think that's why we can both enjoy this song. It's a song for sophisticated realists who understand, um, the, uh, the bio, the biological drive. That, Absolute that, biological drive. Which, yes, which, which is great way to put it. The impetus of this song. <laughs> I don't want to uh, be your friend. I just want to. No, that is what he wants to be. He just wants to be your friend. Right, but is he saying he wants to be your friend, or is he saying he wants to be your friend, your special friend? Well, I don't think this song is actually about a person. I, I don't think this is really, you know, uh, oh, you we're talking to a specific person. Well, no, I think because, you're getting to the to the heart of the matter here. Please go on. Yeah, he kind of builds up throughout it, you know, uh, you know, all these verses. Um, I ain't looking to compete with you, beat or cheat or mistreat you, simplify you, classify you, deny, defy or crucify you. You know, that, that sounds like he's talking to somebody, that one, one individual person. But by the time we reach the end, I don't want to fake you out take or shake or forsake you out. I ain't looking for you to, these are the key lines. I ain't looking for you to feel like me, see like me or be Be like me. me. All I really want to do is baby be friends with you. That's the key line. And the one which cracks him up and you can hear him laugh. Oh, that's one of the best parts of this whole record is him. He's just absolutely, you can can see the shit eating grin on his face in the music. You can hear it. That's the grin of somebody who knows that he's being a little, a little twerp. He's being a little saying he's saying it's only a song. Only a song. It's not set in stone. It's only a song. In the words of another great poet. <laughs> there it is. There it is. One great poet to another. It's only a song. It's not set in stone. Yeah, it's, that's it. Um, yeah, it's a great song. The kind of yodeling that he does. Uh, also, uh, clearly very just tongue in cheek. He's having a great time. He's riffing. He's it, vibing. It feels free. It really does just feel free. And yes. it's, my argument against point that uh, my uh, Phil Oaks roommate would make is that I think that the, the the better interpretation of this, of Bob Dylan's turn away from the political explicitly, is, uh, is to see this as liberatory music uh, of the mind. This is the music that you need somebody to make if you're going to have a successful political revolution you got to have somebody who's just giving people some food for their brain, for their mind, for their spirit that is not connected to a, any political goal that just enlivens people, boosts morale, you know? Yes, that is absolutely one way to look at it. Another way to look at it uh, is that, uh, you know, recording pop songs was never going to spell the end of, uh, you know, uh, global capital. Um, Ian, I'm... So the, st- sooner, the sooner everyone realized that, the I'm going to stop you right there. That is, uh, that, that's shameful what you said. I, I think that if Bob Dylan had said in 1964, you know what, I think we will just do another show where I keep playing these songs and maybe I'll write a few more that are just about saving the world. I think that then uh, things could have gone a lot differently. And, Interesting. Um, you know, the Bay of Pigs would have been successful. <laughs> I think that's the wrong direction. I, I mean, um, it would have been successful. They would have destroyed the United States. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, great song. Great sort of, um, you know, uh, opener and indicator that uh, this is not... Th- I mean, think This about is the, not think your about the, father's Bob Dylan This is album. not your father's Bob Dylan, exactly. Think about the first two songs on the last two records, Blowing in the Wind and The Times They Are a-Changing. And, and then the record before that, think song. about those first two songs, I'm a Communist and Only Communism is Good. It, a uh, lot has changed. Uh, well, you can tell right off the bat, he's a, he's a wily little character. It even goes along with the title of the record, Another Side of Bob Dylan, which he didn't actually like the title, I believe. He kind of, this was suggested to him by the folks at Columbia. It's sort of a corny joke, but I actually kind of appreciate it. I think it makes sense for this record is like, it's, it's. Well, it makes sense because I mean, it's kind of charming just to look at now because it's like, okay, like it's so transparently some A and R guy who grew right. up in nineteen thirty in the thirties going like, okay, well, this is a different thing that Bob is trying to do. So let's just uh, market it, sort of that this is a new side of this artist. We're we're doing something a little bit different, and uh, <laughs> maybe some people might not like it. I know that it's different from the last record, but if we just change that around and we acknowledge that in in the title, I think that we might get something here. You've kind of got a Michael Stuhlbarg thing going there, like a serious man vibes. Uh, yeah, you can imagine Michael Stuhlbarg playing like the, the, like the guy working at Columbia who's like, another side of Bob Dylan, much like a dreidel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Black Crow Blues. Yeah, this is the most unremarkable song on the album, I think. And I, I think it's fun. It's, I didn't say it wasn't fun, but I don't know. Like, this is not the one you remember. I think it is the one that you remember. It's one that I remember, at least. Not because the song is a great song. It's it's sort of a sort of a lark, in fact. It's, it's hardly even much of a song. Uh, but because it's such a such a sharp left turn, I think, uh, for what, or it's a continuation of a sharp left turn, I should say, from that first song. Uh, you know, lest you think that he's going to switch gears and start giving you what you want on this record after that first one is a fake out. No, he's just going to bang on a piano that's barely in tune and just prattle on about wandering around uh, on the road, basically, and not really say anything at all. It's a, it's the shot and chaser is the first two of this record where it's just like, yes. okay, this song doesn't seem to be about much. He just wants to be my friend. And then you're already suspicious because of the infectious good humor that he's bringing to that first track. <laughs> you know, something's wrong. And then the second song just being kind of a um, pleasant blues number. You definitely know that th- this is not right. That th- there is something Something something's happening here and you don't know what it is, but you know, it's something bad. is happening here and you don't know what it is exactly, but you know that it's, it can't be good because um, he sounds happy. He sounds like he's not worried about the plight of the working man. He's just having a good time. He's doing it for himself. He's not doing it for anyone else. This is Bob music made for Bob by Bob. Awful. <laughs> Um, it's also, uh, a song that apparently there's a couple other versions of like this stupid piano riff that he was on. There are two other recordings that are the same song, just with different sets of lyric, Denise and, uh, Denise, Denise and California. Um, neither of which I've ever actually heard, but I should, I should pull them up and look them out. I would love to hear a Bob Dylan song called California. 
Me too. Absolutely sweet California. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Next, we've got uh, well, a... Spanish Harlem Incident. This is kind of the first proper tune on this record. You know what I mean? It's the closest thing, it's the closest thing to what you would expect a Bob Dylan song to be up until this point on this record, I should say. Yeah, but it's, it's different. And, I mean, the, the craziest thing about this album is kind of just like looking at what happens right after... It's pretty wild just to think about like uh, bringing it all back home comes right after this. Like that's yes, that's just kind of crazy. Interestingly, he had written Tambourine Man by this point. Tambourine Man was written and recorded for this record. You know, that uh, that is really, that makes sense to me yeah. because Tambourine Man has an innocence about it a discover like a, a sense of like youthful discovery or something that um mm-hmm. I think is what makes it one of the best Bob Dylan songs ever. Yes. And I I think that that makes sense that it came from sort of like this embryonic period of inspir- like initial burst of in- creative inspiration. Is that song I I actually feel like we'll get into it when we talk about it on the the next uh when we talk about bringing it all back home but that song to me, I think, is probably more personal than than most Bob Dylan uh, songs, or like most than most people kind of give it credit for being or think mm. about it as. I think it's actually, I think of it as a very personal song. Yeah, I I, I don't disagree. I, I think of it really honestly in the same kind of lineage as something like Joker Man. Yeah, but it got it's strange because it seems like a song that a lot of people picked up and thought like, well, this this fits into like the rest of the um psychedelic sort of Yeah, it's just bullshit. about like a Willy Wonka esque character named the Tambourine Man. Yeah, but it really it seems to be about like this kind of moment of self discovery or like having a, 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 a sort of spiritual experience. Um, yeah. Anyway, not to dwell too much on that, but yeah, it's, it's just load on that one what, what you do get in uh Spanish Harlem incident is something that seems like it could have been on the album with uh, it, that. Frankly, Tambourine Man could have been well uh, placed on this record alongside something like Spanish Harlem incident, which has some really memorable lyrics and um, some of that classic psychedelic imagery or rather just like magical realist imagery. Yeah. I mean, he's really stepping into his own as a, as a poet on this one. There's, I I saw some quotes. I was, you know, skimming the um, Wikipedia uh, at one point. um, And, and this Wikipedia entry in particular is really reliant on the Clinton Halen um, analysis of this record for, you know, better or for worse. Um, but, um, he remarks in some of those quotes that Bob is really kind of like, he's, he's reaching for, he's biting off more that he can chew or he's reaching too far with some of these, these lyrics and these, these, um, images and the, and the poetic language that he's employing here. And I don't think that's really true at all. I think like the, the, there are just some really kind of fantastic and arresting images in a lot of these songs and, and Spanish Harlem incident is, one of them, um, you know, yeah, your pearly eyes so fast and slashing and your flashing diamond teeth, the night is pitch black. Come and make my pale face fit into place, I'll please. Let me know, babe, I'm nearly drowning. If it's you, my lifeline's trace. 
clearly he's hanging out in Harlem with a woman of color and he feels out of place because he's a white boy from Minnesota. Um, but he's writing about it in some very uh, interesting, intricate kind of language um, that I don't think there was really a ton of, like, there, there, that's sort of like a, a, a such a major leap on this record, I think, that almost might go underappreciated in many cases because it sounds like the records that came before it, it sounds like it in the sense that it's just Bob and a guitar for the most part, harmonica, piano, a little bit here and there. Um, and so you don't get that actual rock sound until the next record, obviously, but the way he's writing and the way he's singing, like the lyrics have gone electric, so to speak, to be corny. Right. Exactly. Like that is, uh, I know like uh, to say, but the lyrics have made that leap and it will be the next record where the music, the instruments catch up. And I think catch up. that's exactly. like a way of thinking about it that I think a lot of people sort of just didn't get at the time. Some people definitely got some people who are hip to it got, but I not, not your roommate. No, probably not. <laughs> and that's not to say that those, you know, I, I think the charitable view of the people who were invested in the, idea of what Bob was doing before he went electric. It's like they, uh, they were interested in what you could do from an oral, like in an oral tradition, basically like that. It's just like about what you're saying. And that make, that's makes sense. Like it, it really does. I I'm sympathetic to that, you know, to some degree, because it's like it's it is actually like a more natural way to think about these things. Like the big complaint all these people had, like we couldn't hear the words over the the electric guitar. Right. The people who were yeah. hip to it, though, they understood that it, that was the shaky takeoff of something that was going to be a combination of those two things that could be really powerful of electric music and electric, so to speak language like in this way that uh became what rock and roll really became which was yeah at its best when rock and roll music when rock is really great it's a combination of uh music that like goes beyond the acoustic world and and language that matches up to that the guitar is the words man Something like that. It can it can be on the same level. And Bob, at this point, it's a very interesting time to analyze what he's doing because it's like the words, yeah. I don't, I don't know that biting off more than he can chew is the right way to put it. Maybe what, he, what Halen meant to say or was trying to get out there was that the... Uh, the lyrics kind of outweigh the the instrumentation. Yeah, um, maybe. Or there, he's he. Uh, the other fact of it is that I don't think Dylan has totally gotten control of of his talent yet. Like he's he's making these initial big bold movements, and you can see that. And of course, sometimes that lands, and sometimes it connects, and it's really great, but. It, It'll take a little bit of time, way less time than most people, for him to actually kind of steady himself and be able to control those bursts of like lyrical power in a way that is the mm. most effective. 
Yeah, I've got the I've got the quote that I was talking about here uh, pulled up. Uh, Dylan, this is Hanlon again. Uh, Dylan was simply too close to the experiences he was drawing upon to translate them into art. He was also still experimenting with the imagery found on Chimes of Freedom, which we'll get to in a second, and Mr. Tambourine Man. Right. My Back Pages, uh, the, least su- the least successful example of the new style, was replete with bizarre compound images, such as corpse evangelists and confusion boats. I actually, I, I'm actually kind of sympathetic to uh, what Halen is saying there. I think that he's, yeah. I think he's kind of right. I mean, it does seem that this record is the most um, clear example of Dylan drawing upon autobiographical instances to like yeah, form the basis of these songs on a couple, of especially them. Ballad in Plain D, which like um, Dylan himself has sort of acknowledged as, as being that way. Um, yes. And I don't know, as much as people shit talk Halen, sometimes he has good points. And uh, I think that's actually a pretty astute observation that this is maybe that that's that is sort of what happened. He's a little too close to these things. And I think what you end up seeing in like the Pantheon stuff, like Blonde on Blonde, especially, is uh, there's something in all of those songs which you know, almost are all like perfectly executed, which um, feels a little bit more intentionally distanced from some specific event. And it becomes more like a universal thing, or it becomes a little bit more like a opera of like these understandable scenarios where he's a little bit less in there. It's a little bit more about like a, a character that could be you could be him. He's more occluded. He's more obscured on a record like Blonde on Blonde, which I think is to the to its benefit. But and that is what makes this record. I think, like Halen is kind of hinting at. I, I do think it makes it a little bit less successful in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's what you're looking for. Like, um, you know, this is probably Bob's most personal kind of relationship uh, based record until blood on the tracks. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't need to get back into that again, but you know, like that is a Pantheon one, obviously. It's interesting to think of those two in uh, sort of just side by side, which I have never done. I've never actually even thought about another side and blood on the tracks being kind of like two sides of the same coin, but I think they are. It's like one version is kind of a young man's version of, uh, love and loss and the other is uh, a guy who's seen a bit more and is, is a bit more world we- world weary yeah this is this record is breaking up with your first serious girlfriend and that record is uh, your uh, entire life uh, collapsing around you as you cheat on your wife and uh, potentially lose your children in the midst of your successful career um, anyways uh, Chimes Freedom uh, Chimes of Freedom, in a lot of ways, is sort of like the uh, proto Gates of Eden. I think it fits. It fits in uh, with, I think, really the whole second side of bringing it all back home. This is sort of a preview of of what we would get, you know, a few months down the line here. Um, and I think it's a. Uh, it, it really is just as effective, just as successful as something like um, Gates of Eden or uh, It's All Right, Ma. 
um, you know, maybe not up to the absolute heights of what he achieves on tambourine man and maybe blue necessarily, but don't you think like, though is- that, but I'm sorry. I just want to like restart that. Cause I don't think I was as clear as I could have been. Okay. The, uh, I think chimes of freedom is pretty close, um, to, to gates of Eden. And I, I think it kind of goes in that order. Like you get chimes of freedom you get Gates of Eden, and then that sort of culminates this particular mode in uh, It's All Right, Ma. I think that's like a really kind of clear storyline you could look like. And if you want to give a narrative to this, like this one strain of Bob's songwriting around this time, Mm -hmm. you get these kind of really ambitious, like spiritual epics. And I think that Tambourine Man is actually kind of like a subgenre of that. It's connected to those, but it's actually like the most concise and kind of like ultimately successful from like a digestibility perspective. Mm. Um, it's him be- actually sort of like turning that. It's his most successful version of turning whatever you want to call this mode of songwriting into something that people can like get on board with. Mm. Where I think in in terms of like most difficult to lead like this one uh chimes of freedom might be the most difficult and then it it keeps getting refined it's like chimes of freedom gates of eden they're in competition for more difficult it's all right ma it becomes like pretty easy to understand although it's extremely heady but um this ver- this this song is uh it's no tambourine man it has not been turned into that like it's still diamond in the rough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Diamond in the rough might be a good way to put it. It's, it doesn't have the musical. I think, I think what you're thinking about there or maybe what you're picking up on is like just the musical element of something like it's all right, ma or gates of Eden uh, or tambourine man, certainly where even if you're not completely dialed into what's going on lyrically and, and uh, you know, on an, on an, a poetic basis, uh, the music itself is is present and strong enough to kind of carry you through, and and this is still he's he's writing in a very similar style to those songs, but this is still kind of closer to the original, you know, kind of um, music making attitude and approach that he took, where it's just him kind of strumming along on a guitar. Like the 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 tune of Chimes of Freedom is not nearly as memorable or strong um, as, uh, as tambourine man or, uh, or, or anything on the second side of bringing it all back home really. Um, which is not to say that it's not an equally be compelling lyrical piece. I think it's right up there with, uh, Gates of Eden and, um, it's all right, Ma, if not quite as, you know, the towering heights of what, what he gets on tambourine man and baby blue. Um, oh, and baby blue but, is another one to think about in that, in that mode. Yeah. Baby Blue is yeah. for sure kind of, I mean, it just keeps getting better. It's like, yes, Baby, it sure does. Baby Blue is maybe the one song that's better than Tambourine Man that sort of follows that pattern. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And I mean, Desolation I, I think, Row, of course, is kind of a cousin of that. Whatever you yeah, want to. I think Desolation Row a is a little bit less. It, it is a little bit different. What, do you, what are we talking about, though, when we talk about like this type of song? I guess it's just like, there's no way to, of course they're different and they came from different places, but uh, looking at them all, it seems like they kind of stand apart, don't they, from the rest of 
his catalog. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he's he's clearly making a conscious move with um, songs like these to fuse the protest singer kind of label that he was trying to shed, fuse that with his own artistic ambitions. Um, I mean, this song, uh, Chimes of Freedom, and a lot of the songs on the second side of um, Bring It All Back Home stand out like a sore thumb, if only because of their length, basically. Like, he was not recording seven-minute songs on those first couple records. This is a set, like, a seven-minute song by Bob at this point was kind of unprecedented. Yeah. Um, and so Especially one that's that, so abstract relative to the others. Right. It, it, I think you're totally on onto something there, that this is the the attempt of young Bob to give, um, give voice to like the impulse to create those songs that ended up being seen as political without actually doing anything that is political. political. Yeah. He's kind of trying to give people what they want, but do it in his own way. Universal message, uh, um, something that is more like that's harder to, to relate to on, on like a material basis and actually appeals more to like a spiritual ideal, which right. I mean, if you want to know why people like looked to Bob Dylan as like some kind of prophet, it's because he was the first guy really uh, to do this, who got any attention. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly, uh, got a little more attention in the United States, like in pop music, like nobody else was doing this, who got like nobody with this amount of pull anyway. I'm sure there were other people who were, we'll never hear about, you know, who made great music, but, um, yeah, Bob, Bob was the guy and he, he happened to like take the stage and make the choice to like pull out the stops when it came to like, I'm just going to stop relating to things on, on the level of like Hattie Carroll and Medgar Evers and, and things that situations that are easily understood as moral wrongs. He's just going to be like talking about morals in a bigger picture way. Yeah. He's moving away from the specific, you know, like Hattie Carroll and, um, Matt Grevers uh, or Davy Moore, for instance, all literally specific for the time people. being. He is anyway. It's not something he would stick sure. with forever. But yeah, yeah. But in at this moment, moving away from the specific towards something more general and more universal. It, it's kind of close to what he, I mean. Blown in the wind is not a specific song, but it in the context of all of those others which came out around the time. You look at it and sort of think it, it's thought of as more specific. Yeah. Um, it's also just like, uh, just lyrically, I think a really arresting kind of, um, piece. Um, just the, like the central imagery, the, the chimes of freedom flashing. Talking about an auditory thing, but then the image is the flashing of these they're chimes. flashing, yeah. These, these strikes of lightning are the chimes of freedom and they're flashing, but they're chimes, which you normally hear. Like it's a really- Do we know when, when Bob first took acid? It certainly seems like right around this time. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would not be surprised. I think he had, he, I, I read something also that he was like, he drove across the country in early 64 and heard the Beatles on the radio for the first time. 
and was just kind of blown away by what they were doing. Um, and so this was his initial kind of Okay, so April 1964, apparently. Um, April 1964 was what? Was that the cross-country trip? Uh, where he first, when he first took acid. April, okay, got it, yeah. Yeah, so then that's probably, um, probably right then, um, or right after, I guess. Yeah, February 64, Dylan embarked on a 20-day trip across the United States. Riding in a station wagon with a few friends, Dylan began the trip in New York, taking numerous detours through many states before ending the trip in California. By February 1964, Dylan was already telling his friends that Rambo's where it's at. That's the kind of stuff that means something. Right, yeah. I love I love this other quote from Bob also uh, regarding, the, <laughs> regarding this, um, this road trip. Um, we talked to people in bars, miners, talking to people. That's where it's at, man. I just, I love the idea of some 22 year old shithead from New York city, just like driving into some nowhere town and pulling up to a bar and like, just like creepily staring at some depressed miner who's probably going to kill himself a week later and talking to him. Uh, Chum's freedom. It's great. I think if it, it, honestly, if it, if it appeared on a record, like bringing it all back home or blonde on blonde, it would be thought of more as sort of a, like, you know, pantheon, you know, all timer uh, of his, but it's kind of like forgotten might be the wrong word because eh, it's know, a little overlooked. Bob song like this, yeah, a little overlooked exactly um, on a record like this. Of course, Bob Dylan himself has apparently denied any connection between his taking of psychedelics and any development in his songwriting. Well, that wouldn't be the first time old Bob has denied something that is <laughs> so obviously true that it cannot be denied. Uh, I shall be free. Number 10. This one's really, really funny. Yes. This is one of the funniest ones. And it's like the last one you get of this, of, of Dylan doing his funny song routine. What do you mean the last one you get? Like Dylan doesn't do like another like funny talking blues song like this after this point. Hmm. Uh, uh, 115th Dream, I think, is a very funny song. Sure, but I mean, like, the ones in this meter with this style of, like, up and down, the lonesome town, that type of thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I see that. So, like, 115th Dream is, like, the evolutionary step of that. And sure, it's, like, the one you get after this. Of course, that evolves and it becomes something different. But this is, like, the last one you get of that classic early Bob style Uh that like silent era Chaplin Bob vibe. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. Uh, it's really kind of fun. And once again, Bob is just kind of like, like dunking on all of the people who are looking to him for whatever they were looking to him for this first verse. I'm just average common to, I'm just like him, the same as you. I'm everybody's brother and son. I ain't different from anyone. It ain't no use of talking to me. It's just the same as talking to you. (laughs) No one talked. I don't have anything to say. I'm not interesting. I'm not different than anyone. It doesn't matter. I'm just your average guy. Lou Reed will later say. (laughs) Maybe, maybe this is where he got the idea from. Possible. (laughs) Next, we've got uh, two Ramona. Mm. Back to that that well. This is a good one because this is like the germ. I, if we're doing this, if we're doing it this way, I'm, I'm just going to say like, to me, this is the first thing of 
This is where like she belongs to me comes from. This is where just like a woman comes from. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you know, his, his first post acid love song, uh, you know, you could say, we could we say, we could say that, uh, Spanish Harlem incident edges upon that, but this one's a little bit more visionary. This one is really a, uh, an all timer for me. Like I think absolutely my favorite song on the record with a bullet, uh, and really one of my, favorite Bob songs ever in general. It's just such a, such a, uh, beautiful and kind of, um, quiet and, um, um, measured kind of song. I think the waltz, um, tone, the one, two, three really is kind of fascinating. It's It's crazy that that he was so young and he wrote this. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's just kind of hypnotic, I would say. And, and yeah, I mean the, the, the lines all the way through are just absolutely, fucking insane the flowers of the city though breath like get death like at times and there's no use in tr- uh, in trying to deal with the dying though i cannot explain that in lines it's like man it actually seems like you know i i prefaced it as being a little bit like a psychedelic you know we talked about it like post acid but it actually feels more like um classically romantic like it feels like he's using that sort of insight that he may or may not have gotten from sort of like a psychedelic type of experience, but he's, he's actually doing it in a very measured, very uh, mature way where it doesn't, he's not doing any of these like crazy imagistic things. It's, it's kind of more about like the emotional depth being there. It, mm-hmm. it feels like, all of the, um, there's just such like preternaturally mature insight on an emotional level for such a young man in this song. Right. Yeah. It's not hard to understand the words that he's saying and, and what they mean. It's not like giving you like some like jewels and binoculars on this one. Right. Not that right. that's bad. <laughs> you know, that stuff's <laughs> great. But um, this is like, just about like kind of digging it. It's, it is more like, like just like a woman to me, the subtlety of that emotional world. It's definitely, you know, a type of song that he was interested in writing, uh, all the way back to, um, don't think twice, for instance, that, you know, it being, being with a woman, but things aren't working, uh, basically. The thing about don't think twice though, that which makes it powerful is that it's like, everything that this song delves straight into is kind of left unspoken on don't think twice. Whereas this song is like, okay, I'm not just going to acknowledge the situation. I'm going to, I'm going to engage in it. And we're going to talk about why, like, and how you feel. It makes it into a more of like a, um, a complex exchange. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the same kind of thing that animates Don't Think Twice um, or Boots of Spanish Leather or um, this song is also the same thing that animates uh, Rolling Stone or Fourth Street. Um, it, it just like, you know, there's someone that he cares about and loves, but it's just not working. And sometimes he approaches that in like a kind of, you know, lackadaisical manner, like Don't Think Twice. Sometimes he approaches it in kind of a like shithead mean way, like Rolling Stone and Fourth Street. And sometimes he approaches it in sort of a, like a sorrowful. The way he approaches it here is pretty, um, 
It's like meditating. Yeah, it's it's uh, vulnerable. You know, yeah, it doesn't have an edge. It's it's a really kind of opposite of Rolling Stone. It's not someone that he considers like he's not happy that this person feels this way. The way that he is happy and celebrating someone's misery on Rolling Stone. He's you know he's kind of working. I don't know if he's it. celebrating it on Rolling Stone as much as yeah. um, as proclaiming it. You know, and and like that song's kind of about like karma. This song is about like trying to figure something out and knowing that maybe on some level it's, it's a lost cause. It's a great song. It's just stunningly beautiful. I can, I can just listen to it over and over and over again. One of my all time favorites. I agree. It's great. (laughs) The next is, um, (laughs) we're having fun again. Back in string bean mode. <laughs> We're back at tiny Bob Dylan. This is like back to little guy Bob Dylan who's two inches yeah. tall, strutting down the road. The difference is that this tiny Bob Dylan, who is one inch tall, has had sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a motorcycle nightmare. One of the most ridiculous titles of any Bob Dylan song. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so the, the, that's part of the reason I love this record is it's kind of just like a shit post. It is. Basically. Like he's, he's just like, he's spending tons of time on these ridiculous songs that don't make any sense. Well, I don't know how much time he's good. He's spending tons of time on songs and then putting shit between it. That's like goofy. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like these goofy songs. Like there's there's multiple of these just like absolute like kind of like wink at the camera kind of songs, basically, um, on a record that has such heights as Chimes of Freedom and Ramona. Uh, it's it's just um, again you can you can tell that he's making this record um, for himself. You can hear that kind of grin in his voice all the way throughout when he's cracking up while singing, and those are the actual cuts that they use. Like I think. I think that's intentional. Like he wants people to hear that he's having a good time and just kind of being a shithead when he's recording. Yeah, this. I mean, uh, the the maybe w- best way to view a song like uh, "Motorcycle Nightmare" coming right after Ramona is like, <laughs> what a sequencing move in between remote to Ramona and my back pages. It's like, and I shall be free. Chimes of freedom. It's like the pickles and the mustard in the sandwich. You know, this is mm-hmm. these are the the condiments. You're getting their fun little stuff in, in between the meat and uh, the bread. Yeah, kind of the sharp. Uh, this is the vinegary, uh, acidic element. What mustard uh, is to- is this record? It's um, <laughs> spicy brown. Maybe this record is relish. It is. This is a relish record for sure. <laughs> You're right. Just listen to Motorcycle Nightmare. It's like funny. I don't know. He. Uh, it's, it's um, a. It's a narrative about Bob Dylan uh, and a shotgun wedding type of vibe of like he's trying to fuck the farmer's daughter but then uh he realizes that he can't fuck her daughter his daughter and so he gets the farmer to get pissed so that he doesn't have to milk the farmer yeah he he goes i i like uh yeah he says i like fidel castro and the father goes what and then he runs out even though the daughter was very hot and he wanted to fuck the uh, farmer's daughter uh, it's so good. Just in case at this point in the record, you haven't 
understood an important point. Bob Dylan has had sex. He knows what sex is. And he likes it. He's dreaming about it, frankly. He's having nightmares, motorcycle nightmares about it. (laughs) That's because he used to be so much older then, but he's younger than that now. His earlier songs, they weren't about having sex. His newer songs, they're more about fucking. Some of them about fucking. Big Bob. Uh, Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, some of them also like uh, songs like my back pages about how everything he used to be doing uh, was dumb and sucks. And you were an idiot for even being interested in it for the first uh, in the first point. And you should uh, just, you know, go take a long walk off a short pier. When you're a virgin, it's actually a lot more like being an old man in some ways, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you you're not having sex when you're an old man when you're 90 years old, but when you're, um, um, now he's having sex. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. We, we have established that. Just want to make that clear. He's, he's really brutal on this one. Uh, the, the first of a couple songs, uh, towards the back half of this record that he's going to be pretty brutal on. Um, he's, what's uh, brutal he's in not, this to you? Um, everything, uh, rip down all hate. I screamed lies that life is black and white spoke from my skull. I dreamed romantic facts of uh, facts of musketeers, foundation deep somehow. Ah, but I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. Girls' faces formed the forward path from phony jealousy to memorizing politics of ancient history. Well, there you go. Flung down by Corpse Evangelist, unthought of though, somehow. Corpse Evangelist. See, I don't think that Halen was right, actually, on this one, because I'm pretty sure Corpse Evangelist, in the light of that previous line of about memorizing ancient politics. Doesn't that seem like he's just talking about uh, his former relationship with one uh, very communist, yeah, yeah. communist daughter. He's uh, talking about how I had to like memorize all this bullshit. And like these people who are evangelists for fucking dead people who like don't matter. They're, they're hung up on the past. And I, used to be like, Oh, that's very important. And now I realize that's, that's nothing. This is the song that is kind of about Bob Dylan deciding, like, it's not worth it to like be part of this political shit. Like I just need to do what I'm going to do. I think it's also pretty clear, like looking at this record and some of the songs here, this one in particular, and then uh, Ballad and Plain D, which we'll get to in a second, that I, like, I, I, I really do think that this artistic move that he's making at this point is like inextricably linked to the collapse of the relationship. Yeah, with Rotola yeah, at the same definitely. Time. Like there's like, I, 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 there, there absolutely has to be this element of you know, her coming from this kind of lefty Jewish family in the city and like being kind of a big name with, you know, bona fides in the left community uh, at that time. Um, There's absolutely something motivating him to not only, you know, reject her at this time, but also reject everything she's associated with, everything she stood for. Um, And so he's doing that without becoming some sort of, you know, reactionary shithead, uh, which is good, but you know, you know, sort of just disavowing things in general and saying like, you know, this is all this is all gunk. Some would say in the, he's he is becoming a, a reactionary shithead by 
throwing the baby out with the bathwater. At least that's what some would say. Is they're saying that he's throwing out those good certain roommates of certain Jokerman hosts. Those good uh, political instincts, you know, which are rooted in like the material world in which are are worth defending. He's uh, he's, he's conflating not, he's not reject- Like Chimes of Freedom is a song about. Which is what the, I would you know- say to a certain person. I would say, you know, <laughs> this is actually him kind of, he's emerging as more of a, it is a sort of more spiritual, humanistic perspective rather than a staunchly political one. And mm-hmm. um, I think that the whole, especially the last few songs we're getting into now, it's like really pretty clearly him working out these complex feelings about that, about like, well, this stuff seemed right. And like, I was on board with you, but then something happens. And, and suddenly I wonder like, were you right? Am I, maybe you didn't have the big picture view on this. And maybe I need to like, by actually kind of distancing myself from the thing that seemed like so adult and, and together, maybe that's actually what growing up is. My back pages seems to be about a song where he's reckoning with the idea of like growing up as being something where you uh, you start to realize that there is no black and white. There things are just a mess, and you have to kind of find your way within that. Yes, prematurely jaded. He's done a lot of growing up very quickly uh, at this point in his life. Twenty twenty probably 22 when he wrote the song 23 when he recorded it it's fucking wild (laughs) he's not grown up enough uh that he won't put out the next song like the next song it's back to him being 22 i don't believe you (laughs) is one of the most 22 ass songs you could ever do um yeah where from free away from all that high-flying rhetoric of my back pages I don't believe you is the sound of a young man who has been jilted and is uh, doing a shit, uh, a shit post. (laughs) (laughs) He's mad. He's pissed because he had sex with someone and then she doesn't want to have sex with him again. So maybe that says something about him. Right. Maybe uh, Lyndon Bisgrove or whatever his fucking name is, (laughs) is uh, right. (laughs) This is, I don't believe you. She acts like we never have fucked. Uh, I mean, I have met. Uh, yeah, this is a fun one. It is very fun. It's it's great. It's the other side of the coin of the first track in some ways, or of if you got to go. Yeah, exactly. Go now. Yeah, these are all, these are all uh, you know, uh, joke songs about fucking. It's it's the sequel to if you've got to go. <laughs> half these half of these early songs are him doing like jerky boys skits, basically. <laughs> it's it's like the early funny ones, uh, as you could say, of of Woody material. It's like this is his love and death. This this type of material. Um, next is not an early funny one. No, Ballad in Plain D. It well, it is still extremely twenty two years old. Yes, but it's like the it's like the deep dark part of that. It, this is like the pages of the locked diary type shit. Pretty, pretty hard hardcore shit on this one. This is a song that Dylan has expressed regret at even putting out. Yes. 
because it's a little too personal and it's personal if you know anything about his relationship really is what is that it is but um this is an eight minute and 17 second song where he, (laughs) he transforms his relationship with Susie Rotolo into like a sort of medieval drama. There isn't even any like varnish on this. Like there's no effort whatsoever to like, like mask things or like sort of speak about it in obscurish language or something. It's just like, it like, if you know, who these people are, which obviously we all know now because we've spent the last however many decades. And I'm sure the gossipy people of the scene knew. Oh, right. Exactly. This is a little, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing behind the curtain a little too much on this one for her parasite sister. I had no respect bound by her boredom, her pride to protect countless visions of the other. She'd reflect as a crutch for her scenes and her society. Oof. Beneath a bare light bulb, the plaster did pound her sister and I in a screaming battleground, and she in between the victim of sound, soon shattered as a child neath her shadows. Broke like a little girl. Yeah, this is not a very, uh, not a very kind portrait of anyone here. You know, what this (laughs) is, I think, is it's something that you do as an emerging artist, perhaps, where you... You, you're, he's testing the waters of like, how personal can I get? How real can I be? And I think that that's what this song is. Is it's like it's pushing right up against that limit, which he would later realize. Okay, I'm not going to go that far again. <laughs> but at the moment, what you can't criticize is that this is a a song that that's very real and it's very raw. It. Doesn't make it a better song, necessarily. It is very real. It is very right. But see, this is why something like Idiot Wind is so successful where this is not, is because this is him just projecting out and just just looking at everyone around him who's fucked him over. Whereas Idiot Wind is about him to... By the end of it, exactly. He, he that, that last stands in Idiot Wind, we are idiots, babe, that, that changes the entire thing there. The fact that he goes there on that song and implicates himself, it is a big deal. Although you could also make the case that even that is a little bit guarded because it's like... I'm dragging you down with me. <laughs> yeah, certainly. But coming, you know, coming uh, from an artist who has <laughs> it's emotional songs like growth. This, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. It is some sort of uh, um, um, uh, deeper well of emotion there. And to to fly into our final uh, sequence here, this last song is very interesting to think about in that context because it is kind of, in some way, proto idiot wind. And he is not ready to implicate himself exactly. Right. He is ready to implicate himself as the cool guy. Who's having sex with someone else now. And who that person is not, is is more interested in him than he is. The uh, final bit of this record, the last quarter or so, it culminates in It Ain't Me, Babe, the final track, which is the inevitable end to this saga of... Uh, really a breakup record in a lot of ways. It's a breakup record that is also equally a record about like doing your own shit now that you're a free man. Well, yeah, he's breaking up with, with 
Susie Rotolo on this record. He's also breaking up with every everyone else that was like Susie Rotolo who looked at him as the voice of a generation. You're exactly right, I think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, when he's saying, it ain't me, babe, uh, he's, he's speaking to her and he's speaking to everyone else. To all of you, to everybody who looked up to him, looks up to him, thinks of him as something special. Yeah. It ain't him. All of the all of those sniveling, whining, disgusting British people interviewed uh, at the shows in '65, as we saw in No Direction Home. I mean, I don't know if, how intentional it is, but this is not just about a girl. This is about it's not me. Like you're barking up the wrong tree. Yep. Easy as that, and some again. Just this is another all timer. Uh, I think kind of the invention of the last song on the record um, being the, the, yeah. And the first like Bob record that has the important closer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, He, he had established the important opener, you know, uh, right from freewheeling. But this is the first one that bookends, you know, the first song and the last song are equally kind of essential and, and kind of put everything uh, in perspective for you. Um, some beautiful uh, imagery and lines as well. Go melt back into the night, babe. Everything inside is made of stone. Like, come on, man. Come on, man. I don't believe that this was intentionally written as like a fuck you to the people listening necessarily. But when you do think of it that way, it is actually kind of more moving because it's a compassionate song up to a point. Right. Yeah, up to a point, absolutely. Is compassionate to these people. This person, which you can just extend or you know, you can think about however you want, it's directed at somebody who cares about him and who he's saying, like, you want me to be this way that I'm just not going to be able to be. It's I can't be. And I understand that. But it goes just short of saying, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, he's not he's not apologizing for anything here, but once again, like with um like with um uh, well, I guess not Ramona necessarily, but it it, it there's no venom in this song. No, it's it's um, he's doing right by the person he's talking to by yeah. just giving them the plain truth about yeah. how things are going to be and how he is saving them some some strife. By just saying, I'm not the guy. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if you, if you listened, if you took that advice to heart, you would be well prepared for the very next song you would ever hear on a recorded album by him, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> moves in a very different direction. And, and what a remarkable uh, contrast that is, just to think about. This whole record, truly one of the most important records of Bob Dylan's career. Um, what a journey it is just to think about. And um, I've really enjoyed rediscovering it, kind of discovering it in a lot of ways for the first time. So yeah, it's, it's a really fantastic record. I mean, it's not, it's not one that's like exciting necessarily. Um, not compared to the in. heights that you, yeah, no, but av- for, for where we stand. And I think that this is kind of the perfect time for me to discover it on that level. Uh, having seen the sights that we've seen, I've seen yeah. things you couldn't even imagine 
like tears yeah. in the rain, et cetera. Tears in rain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, this becomes much more significant and interesting to th- just to get into. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a record for, you know, I, I think of all of the original run records. This is the one that is most for the heads at this point, uh, which makes, uh, makes sense that here we are talking about it. Any parting thoughts? I would give this album uh, two stars out of three. I would give this album three stars out of three if we were giving these albums three stars, three star ratings. Uh, maybe three stars. Three stars. <laughs> What's up? What's up? <laughs> away from my window leave at your own chosen speed I'm not the one you want babe I'm not the one you need you say you're looking for someone Who's never weak but always strong To protect you and defend you Whether you are right or wrong Someone to open each and every door But it ain't me, babe No, 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 it ain't me, babe It ain't me you're looking for, babe 